Let's get started. Um, as you know, we didn't meet last week, and so I have to do two sermons today, so I hope you brought a lunch. Um, we're going to be here in a minute. No, I'm kidding. This is last week's message. Um, we're in week two of our first series of 2021, and we're looking at what it means to be Open Table Community Church. We started last week by talking about a banquet that Jesus describes um, while he's in a room full of people um, who are gathered kind of mostly to network and hobnob under the guise of a dinner party. And while watching kind of the, the social scene play out, he tells the story of a guy who grew sick of these kinds of functions and decided instead to have a genuine meal with people who were actually happy to be there. Um, this host that Jesus spoke of kind of shocked everybody by breaking the social contract. Um, he invited the less savory members of society to his party. And I explained how we are kind of attempting to follow that same type of model here at Open Table Community Church. We know there are amazing churches. There are great churches for people who know how to do church um, and know how to function in kind of typical church world. Um, we just feel like there are also ragamuffins like us who, uh, who love Jesus but don't know how to or don't like to play church games. And so we started Open Table Community Church for people who don't always necessarily have the best table manners. Um, I also told a story about some of the ministry that Esther and I have had around our table, um, especially some of the homeless people we've, we've um, hosted um, and done over the last three decades. But I would be remiss to act as though our table has always been this kind of amazing tool for outreach and ministry. Normally, it's the place where the most rudimentary lessons take place. Um, for instance, uh, years ago, my daughter, Rebecca, um, when she was around two, um, I had an employee who lived in the neighborhood with me, and he would come to my house every morning and have breakfast with our family, and then uh, he would ride to work with me. Um, Caleb was his name. He was a good church boy who used good church boy language. And Rebecca was just learning to use language, and she didn't always use it well. And so during a particular phase of her life, um, she was butchering the word fork. Um, what she would do was innocently omit the R and, uh, and replace the O sound with a U sound. <laughs> Give that some thought. <laughs> As her parents, um, Esther and I, we had nine older kids. We, we found the mispronunciation endearing, and we knew she'd grow out of it soon enough. And, and didn't give it much thought. Okay, let's be honest. I thought it was hilarious. But um, Caleb, on the other hand, physically cringed every time this beautiful little chubby cheek girl said, I want a fork, or I need a fork, uh, in her ador adorable li little mispronunciation. And so he launched himself into an epic quest of speech therapy to lead this poor child from darkness to light. From the world of foul language to a world where she could request a simple eating utensil without making everyone uncomfortable. And uh, when he was finished, our adorable little girl said the word fork with two syllables and an added I sound. And she was probably six before she stopped asking for a fork <laughs> at the dinner table. Um, but yeah, so the dinner table is where the funnest lessons happen. This week's story... Um, happens again around the table. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you're following in your own Bible. I do need to set this up just a little bit. Um, when David was a child, and he knew exactly zero about politics and social power dynamics, um, the prophet of God shows up at his house and pours oil on his head in this ancient symbol of royal initiation. Um, 
I'm sure that David knew that Saul was the king, uh, but I can't imagine he had any idea what that truly meant. Um, he couldn't have known the tensions that have built in between King Saul and the prophet Samuel. And there's no way he really knew anything about how dynasties would work in Israel because there had never been one. Saul was the very first king. I also don't uh, know that he would have had any way of sorting out where the real authority lies. Because Saul had been king for a very short time and Samuel was the 16th successive judge, um, which had been the kind of leadership structure in Israel for 400 years. If you think about it in American context, that would be like the 1620s. Like it had been a long time that this had been the dominant kind of governmental structure and it had changed just a very short time ago. So there would have been no way that a boy like David could have known what this new kind of social power dynamic would have been. So David had every reason to accept Samuel's royal anointing. But no way to fully understand what that might have meant in his current context. So he goes on with life, um, and after killing an NFL lineman and playing guitar like James Taylor, David moves into the king's house. And uh, he does what every teenage boy that age would have done. He makes a best friend. Um, David becomes BFFs with the king's son, Jonathan, and the two were completely inseparable. Um, they saved each other's lives and made oaths to be friends forever, and neither boy could imagine that their relationship would have become divided until Saul, uh, Samuel, uh, Jonathan's dad, Saul, threw a spear at David to kill him. So though their affections never changed, um, Jonathan's dad wanting to kill David definitely like cut in on their Xbox time. So David becomes a homeless refugee, and Jonathan lives in a palace with his, by his father's side. And this kind of horrible separation in their friendship lasts until the day that King Saul and his son Jonathan were both killed on the same day in battle. David mourns and laments, and eventually he was asked to rule a single tribe in Israel, the tribe he came from, the tribe of Judah. And he accepts, but this is where he doesn't act normally. Um, how many of you know exactly who Ishbosheth is? You guys, when you're at home telling, telling your kids about Moses and Noah and David and Peter, James, and John, you always teach them about Ishbosheth, right? No, none of us know who Ishbosheth is. He was, um, uh, he was Saul's fourth son, uh, Jonathan's brother, probably half-brother, and, uh, and he's the one who actually takes over the kingdom when Saul dies. He takes over the majority of the kingdom except this little tribe that David was leading. Most of us don't think of Ishbosheth when we think of Saul, David, and Solomon, you know, the big three, we forget that Ishbosheth actually sits in there. So, uh, so this is where David gets a little weird. Um, he has the anointing of Samuel, um, who not only represents God, but 400 years of Jewish tradition. Um, so there's no reason to expect that Saul's heir will automatically take the throne, because there has never been a dynasty in Israel before. So there was never a natural pass down from king to son in Israel before. So David has every reason to believe he should be the next king because Samuel anointed him to be the next king. Um, Esther and I actually years ago uh, helped plant a church that um, actually turned out to be an angry church split that we knew nothing about. Um, the church had been, was being planted out of a much bigger church um, where the founding pastor, like years after planting the church, the church was a big mega church and he kind of flaked out and ran off with his secretary and uh, kind of shocked the whole church. Um, but years before that, he had promised this younger pastor, when I die or retire, you will take over this church. And uh, 
And so when he like flaked out and ran off, the elders weren't exactly interested in placing his predecessor or successor in the in the the pastoral seat. So so he did not wind up taking over the church. And so um, this younger pastor was kind of like David. He had been anointed years ago for this position, except when the older pastor freaked out and ran off, he realized that wasn't going to happen. And so uh, so he basically made the big church plant him. Um, pay all of his expenses and create a, another church um, or he was going to blow up the whole church. And Esther and I were clueless to all of this. We thought we were trying to start a new church and tell more people about Jesus. Like we had no clue that we were part of this weird, crazy power dynamic. We're usually the clueless ones in any situation where you know, we're, the number of times we tell stories, we're like, and we had no idea. Yeah, that, was, that was us. We were clueless that there was any of this drama for a very long time. Uh, and once we figured it out what was going on, um, which was uncomfortably late in the game, um, we got to see firsthand what it looks like when a pastor knew for a fact he was supposed to be in this spot but wasn't and the damage that can do. Um, and fortunately, all he did was plant a church. In David's day, it would have looked very, very differently. Um, most transitions of power in David's day came with bloodshed, came with uh, with a lot of death. And... Uh, and the absolutely normal, typical, expected thing to do if you were David um, was to kind of grasp and secure your kingdom. And the way you did that was by killing everybody in the family of the old king. You would kill their family, their close supporters, you would kill everybody. It's always been this way throughout history. Um, very barbaric, but it was the only way you could truly secure your kingdom. Really hard to set up a new kingdom when everybody is still turning to the old administration, you know, when things go south and there's all these power connections so that what they would do is they would just go and annihilate everybody in the king's family and there's actually stories about it in the bible where that's exactly how they did it so what uh everybody kind of expected david to do and what honestly when when historians even look back at this time period they can't understand why david didn't it, it, this is a very unique transition of power for david to act the way he did um because he did not kill the competition um this clears every possible, uh, doing this would have cleared every possible obstacle and ensured him um, a secure kingdom. But he does not do that. David knows that God had called him to be on the throne, and so God is the one who's going to have to put him on the throne. And so David settles in for a pretty long time as being just the king of Judah, just the, the kind of the ruler of this one little tribe in Israel. And incidentally, years later, it works for David. The entire nation comes to him. And asked him to be king of all of Israel. And he becomes the kind of undisputed, democratically chosen king of God's people. So he moves the capital to Jerusalem. He moves the ark into this newly minted capital city. And he builds himself a palace. Um, and he gets Israel kind of more secured and more peaceful than it's ever been. Israel is prospering in a way that has never prospered. And for the very first time since the crazy old prophet showed up and dumped oil on his head, David can breathe. And, and so this is, if you're, if you're reading this, chapter 9, chapter 8, he's still battling and fighting and setting up the kingdom. Chapter 9 is the first kind of pause after this amazingly long and chaotic season of David's life. And into that stillness, at the end of years of struggle, chapter 9 happens. And that's what we're going to read today. It reads like this. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked. 
Yes, sir, I am, Ziba said. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Uh, in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Emiel. So David sent for him and brought him to Makir's home. Uh, his name is Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed his head to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, produce food for his master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, I am your servant, and I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. But from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in his, both his feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the first thing I want to notice here is kind of the tone of this passage. Um, it starts like this. One day, David asked, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone whom I can show, anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So right off the bat, we can hear this kind of casual, almost like lazy tone to David's voice. Like he's just kind of reminiscing. Like um, this is definitely mature, peacetime David who says this. This is nostalgic David who's looking back over the good old days with Jonathan. Um, this is the kind of stuff you can really only think about when you're at peace. You don't you don't ask these kind of questions when you're when you're combative and at war. Like this is this is peacetime David. Very peaceful and nostalgic. David, no doubt, remembered how he and Jonathan had always vowed to care for each other's families. So David, despite, uh, or decides to kind of follow through on that promise, and the ironic part is he's been so busy, you know, setting up a kingdom that he doesn't even um, have any idea if Jonathan has any family alive. He definitely has not been in touch with him. He has to ask the question, like, is there anybody even still alive from those old days? And uh, when he learns that Jonathan had a son, David, uh, uh, a son, David calls him, and the first thing he does is, um, is you can, he kind of undoes this obvious um, emotional charge. It says, when he came to David, he bowed down to the ground in deep respect, and, and David said, greeting Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth says, I'm going to show you, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He kind of launches into that. Um, this one little phrase, don't be afraid, uh, really kind of sets the stage here. Um, I mean, think about it. To us, you know, a, an invitation to the White House is supposed to be a good thing, right? It was like an invite to Peter Diddy's white party. This is a big deal. This is getting like the, the club box seats at Arrowhead, you know, and a, and a locker room pass. It's supposed to be good. You just got invited to the king's palace. This is awesome. Except not really, because remember, people in David's position in that era of history had a particular pattern for securing their kingdoms. And so when you're a relative of the old king, you do not relish an invite to the palace. Um, in fact, there can really only be one reason the king would summon you. And so Mephibosheth knows that his time is up. Um, really, we have to assume that 
that he considered the time he had been given uh, a bit of, you know, of grace. This was borrowed time. He knew how things worked. And, uh, and he's the only one of the king's predecessors or successors still alive. So imagine the kind of surrender on Mephibosheth's part to face David um, and bow down ready for the kill stroke. You know why you're there. And then David says, don't be afraid. Just kind of, hey, just breathe. Don't be afraid. And Mephibosheth, surprised, David not only spares his life, but sets him at his table like one of his sons. And, and this is simply one of my favorite kind of pictures of the grace of God um, in the scripture. Because the similarities about, of the way that David treats Mephibosheth and the way the Father treats us really is awe-inspiring. So first, David does not re- receive Mephibosheth. Uh, because of anything that Mephibosheth himself does. Uh, Listen to how it reads. He says, One day David asked, Is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David doesn't even know Mephibosheth. He doesn't even know he exists. But he cares for the stranger, not because the stranger is worthy of it, because the stranger has done anything good. David is kind to Mephibosheth because he loves Jonathan. Because he deeply loves Jonathan. And this is our story. We come to the table the same way. The creator, the judge of the universe, hasn't welcomed us to the table because we are worthy. We don't have a seat here because of anything we've done. And there's nothing we can do to earn this seat. It's like God looked out over creation and said, Is there anyone I can show kindness to for my son Jesus' sake? It's pure and simple. We sit in a seat at a table paid for by Jesus. We don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We were invited because of Jesus. And like Mephibosheth, our invitation is weirdly tense. We only show up at this table with someone else's name on our ticket. For Mephibosheth, it was Jonathan. For us, it's Jesus. But we show up with someone else's name on our ticket, knowing we're actually worthy of death. We come expecting death. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, and you will eat at the table, or you will eat at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you would show such kindness? I'm a dead to a dead dog like me. Again, this isn't Mephibosheth being self-deprecating. This isn't him just like, I'm, I'm unworthy. He came expecting to die. He knew he was going to die. He knew the traditions. He knew David couldn't afford to keep him alive. And so Mephibosheth came accepting his fate. When we come to Jesus, it's almost the same way. We know we're worthy of death. We know we're the ones who messed up. We're the ones who should die. In fact, Jesus told this story one day. He saw two men praying, and he's walking with his disciples, kind of minding their own business, and he hears two men praying, and one is thanking God for how awesome he is. And the other one is, is, is so broken down he can't even lift his head to heaven. He just beats his chest and says, forgive me, God, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus stops everything and he goes, look at this guy. Look at this guy. He gets it. He gets it. When we get baptized, we kind of imitate this ritual of being buried in our sins and, and being put to death. Because we come knowing we're worthy of death. And the weight of trying to... the uh, Earn because I know it can be weird standing up here saying we're we're all worthy of death we're all sinners like, it gets heavy and it feels like weird but 
The weight of trying to earn your seat at the king's table and struggle to hold on to it is exhausting. And I know it, it seems defeatist to always talk about the fact that we're all sinners and worthy of death, but once you realize that you do not deserve your seat and yet you have it, it is given to you as a free gift, and yeah, you can't earn it, there's nothing you can do to keep it, but it's given to you as a free gift, a gift of love based on someone else's perfect relationship with the Father, I promise you the struggle to hold that seat turns into gratitude. It turns into thanksgiving. And the food gets sweeter and the drink gets more refreshing and you get to relax and enjoy the meal because you're not fighting to earn your seat. You know that somebody else paid for it. I mean, can you imagine how amazing Mephibosheth, I'm going to have to say this name a lot, I'm going to butcher it a lot, how how amazing Mephibosheth felt at the table with David's sons, like how much more amazing he probably felt. David's sons felt like it was a birthright, like they deserved to be there. Can you imagine how much better the food tasted than Mephibosheth? How much more incredible, like, can you imagine him coming to the table, like sitting down and, and being like, dude, get your elbows off the table, where do you think you are? Man, this food, can, can I get this cooked a little more? I doubt it. I doubt he came complaining about anything. I think he was probably thrilled to be there. But he also didn't come like a beggar, you know, eating scraps off the table. It says, from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at the king's table like one of the king's own sons. That's our story. Grace is rooted in love, not shame. He doesn't sit there in shame. He sits there in love like one of the sons. Nowhere does David say, I promised your dad I'd do this, so I have to be nice to you. No, he says, I want to, because of my love for your son, I want you to be like one of my sons. He just shows love to Mephibosheth. So yes, we come because of grace, because we are sinners. And the more aware we are of our sin, the more we marvel at grace. But God's grace doesn't come just because of some ancient promise he made to Jesus and he has no choice. He comes because he loves us. Nobody has to twist God's arm to show his grace to us. He he does it out of his great love for us. We sit like sons and daughters of the king. And finally, the sweetest part of the story for me. It says that Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Earlier in the Bible, we there's one little blip about Mephibosheth. We find out he was dropped as a baby and broke both of his feet. And so he was injured from that point on. He was crippled. And it can be hard nowadays to live in our world when you're handicapped. But in David's day, it was, it was utterly brutal. Most people were reduced to begging. And the only thing that kind of protected Mephibosheth is that he was from a wealthy family. Add on to that that in that day, most physical handicaps were seen as kind of a curse from God for some reason or some other superstitious interpretation. And it was very, very easy for a handicapped person that day to be reduced to just their handicap. But this last verse is such kind of a beautiful image, the picture it creates of, of every single day, Mephibosheth's wounds, his weakness, his brokenness, his shame are hidden under a table. And Mephibosheth ate a meal like a son without having to be defined by his brokenness. Those old symbols of his past were neatly tucked under the grace of his host. Last week we talked about how the host in Jesus' story filled his table with blind and crippled and poor. And as much as we want to be the host in that story and welcome everyone, we also, we do get to play that role sometimes, but we are also the guests. 
we come in limping and groping to see and lonely and hurting and desperate and we all gather around a table and for the first time, those things don't define us. We are instead defined by the table we sit at. Paul spoke of a frailty that he had asked three times for God to fix and God wouldn't. I almost hear echoes of Mephibosheth in that. Covered by the table and eating despite his wounds as a testament of his host's grace. And what does this story mean to open table? Community church. Other than, again, we're talking about a table story. Well, first, we take very seriously that we love people. We show kindness to people. We welcome people, not because of some human or societal definition of worth. We don't, we didn't open our table to people who deserve to be here. We believe that people are worthy because they're created in the image of God and because Jesus loved them enough to die on the cross for them, period. And we show them kindness for that reason alone. I get asked all the time how I would handle it if, what would you do if this kind of person came to church, if that kind of person came to church? And honestly, I don't have any formulas. I don't have any, well, this kind of person. We would deal with each one differently, but there's no hard rules, but I do know I would start by saying, is there a way we can show kindness for Jesus' sake? Always. Can we find room at the table for this person for Jesus' sake? And I know that's oversimplifying, and I know there's complications, but I would like to start where Jesus started. Can we show kindness for Jesus' sake? At Open Table Community Church, we never start by defining who we, would, who we might keep out. We start by trying to figure out who we can include. Who, who can we show kindness to for Jesus' sake? Hopefully people who are a mess. Hopefully people who are broken. Hopefully people who are wounded and, and needing love and care. We'll always start from that place. Is there anyone we can show kindness to? Not, who do we have to keep out? Who's not allowed? We would never start by defining it that way. We'll always start with David and say, who can we show kindness to for Jesus' sake? Number two, we all feel like Mephibosheth here at Open Table. We know that we deserve death. Instead, we get a seat at the table, and, and we focus way harder on, on that than we do the do's and don'ts and the list of things Christians should or shouldn't say or watch. Or Although those things are no doubt important, they matter. We're just so excited to be here that we have a really hard time focusing on those things. I mean, we talked about, can you imagine Mephibosheth complaining about the food? I have a hard time picturing that. that that's, not the way, that's not the way we think. We're just thrilled to be included. We're thrilled that God is allowing us to be part of, of his mission and, and advancing his kingdom. We're not going to sit here and go, dude, seriously, get your elbows off the table. That's really not how we function. We're just excited to be included. The third way the story influences our thinking here at Open Table is, as far as we're concerned, your weakness is covered by the table. And this can be a tough one because we want you to heal. We don't want you to carry your weakness forever. We, we want to see Jesus redeem brokenness and bring beauty from ashes and, 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 and heal sickness. And we, we don't see... Uh, we don't see that as, as something that you just automatically carry forever. We want to see you redeemed and, and grown and healed, but we don't consider you to be defined by that brokenness. We don't play God. We don't make people you know, push through. We've had people come 
you know, needing a rest and overwhelmed and hurt by past churches. And, and yeah, we want to see you revitalized and serving the kingdom of God and healthy. We want to see you moving in sustainable, life-giving ways. Of course we do. We also understand you might need a minute. You might need to heal. You might need to rest. And we're fine with that. We don't define you by that brokenness. We're like, oh, yeah, we can't use that because we're that broken person. No. We want you to tuck up under the table and, and, and eat with us, whether you're ready to rock and roll or not. Just come as you are. What that means is we own where we are. We all need to heal. We need time. We, we, we need you know, the Holy Spirit to touch us, absolutely. And that doesn't stop us from engaging. It doesn't stop us from, from being community together, from being open table, and from pulling up at the same table together. If you come in wounded and struggling and limping in any way, we're here to help, but those things will never define you. We're all wounded and struggling and limping, and we all pull up to the table, and our weaknesses are covered by the table and covered by the king's strength. And finally, the final thing that Open Table gets from this passage is, is we focus hard on the four relationships broken by sin. We talk about this all the time. When Adam and Eve ate that apple, the very first thing they noticed was they didn't really like who they were anymore. They felt shame for the very first time. The, something in the relationship with themselves was broken. When God showed up, they hid from him. They'd never hid from God before. Something in the relationship with God was broken. As soon as God engaged them, they started blaming one another. When just a chapter ago they were saying they were one, one flesh, bone of my bone. And now they're, they're separating. Something's broken in the relationship to the other. And then when God told them what was going to happen now, he said, now you're going to scratch out a living. It's going to be hard. Life's going to be a struggle. You're going to, be, you're going to combat your own calling, your own vocation. Something between them and kind of the created order was broken. Four relationships, all broken. And part of our vision here is to focus on all four of those relationships. And look what David does for Mephibosheth. He restores a fellowship, a relationship between Mephibosheth and the king. And he brought him into fellowship with the whole rest of his family, all of his sons and daughters. And restored relationship to the other. He removed his, his shame, the, the, the way he saw himself as a dead dog. And he seated him in a place of honor. But finally his vocation and kind of resulting legacy is repaired. Listen, he says, Then the king summoned David for Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat at my table. This is amazing. And it showed me that David really understood human psychology, human nature a bit. See, it's awesome that David wanted to show Mephibosheth love, and that's super cool. It's awesome that he, that he kind of hid his brokenness and his shame under the table, which is super cool. And that he connected him to people again and to kind of society again. That's super cool. But the really neat thing for me is that he understood Mephibosheth was going to have to be productive if he was ever going to feel right. And so he, he kind of restores his farm. He hires laborers. He puts them in charge of earning money from Mephibosheth's household and eventual legacy. Like, Mephibosheth needed to feel like he was part, like, to just sit at the king's table and do nothing quickly starts to hurt the human soul. And so to come knowing, I have a farm and it's making money and I'm producing and my, like, I am building wealth for, for those that come after me. Like, he, he made Mephibosheth productive again. 
Mephibosheth had all the tools. He just needed help getting there. So we talk about these four relationships all the time, and I love that in this story all four show up. Mephibosheth restored to the king and to others and to himself and to his vocation. And this is one of the central focuses at Open Table Community Church. We value work here. We don't consider the church work to be like the sacred work and what you guys do out there is secular work. Work is sacred. We were created to be productive. God created us to work, and we need to see that that it's a divine calling and understand that being productive is a godly thing. Whether it's raising kids or running companies or doing what your boss tells you to do, work is sacred. We need to take joy in that productivity. So it's easy to overlook in this story, but I love that David fixes Mephibosheth's farm holdings, as simple as that sounds. While he's also setting them at the king's table in this kind of beautiful like picture of grace, he's also being really practical and really kind of fundamentally helping Mephibosheth uh, on the ground level. To me, this is real life. God doesn't want just our songs and our prayers and our liturgies and a few perfectly written and de- delivered sermons. God wants to look at the work we do as part of how we reflect his image and take all the other, all of it as sacred. And we redeem that from the fall. So how do we respond to this? At Open Table, um, you go to church with some people that don't know how to pronounce pork in, the, in a way that makes some people's skin crawl and and that's what it means to be Mephibosheth, to sit at a table with Mephibosheth. I remember the exact moment um, that I knew I was probably not going to fit in with the whole church thing. I hadn't been following God for long. Esther and I had kind of just met. I, I, mean, I'd, I had been saved years before, but I'd really just been pursuing after God for a very short amount of time. I was listening to my mentor, Butch, teach about Balaam and Balak. And he was teaching about Balaam had, um, was trying to ride this donkey. And, uh, and an angel was blocking the way. And, and, uh, and, the, and the donkey could see the angel, but Balaam couldn't. So Balaam grew angry and was trying to get the donkey to move, but the donkey wouldn't move. So he finally got off to kind of beat the disobedient donkey for not moving. And finally the donkey spoke to Balaam and said, why are you hitting me? And at that moment, uh, the angel made himself um, visible and, uh, and I've always thought it was kind of cheap that the angel, a- angel let the donkey get hit before he kind of, <laughs> kind of revealed himself. Like, that wasn't fair. But Butch, my mentor, after telling the story, says, so what do you think that means? And without missing a beat, I said, always listen to your ass. <laughs> and I need to tell you the silence in that room <laughs> and the power of those glares were enough to knock the sense of humor out of anybody. And it wasn't actually fully silent because the kids in the room were all giggling. And I immediately knew, I'm going to have a really tough time here because that was funny. I don't care who you are. <laughs> and then when I was a children's pastor years ago, I had written this skit and I had a character who was a superhero character that we used all the time. And, and, uh, and he broke up a mugging, the superhero character did. And, and I had written this dialogue where the mugger turned the gun on the superhero and he pulls his cape over and he says, I fear not, in his big superhero bravado, I fear not for my cape is bulletproof. And I said, so what happens if I shoot you in the face? And he goes, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, don't shoot me in the face, shoot me in the cape. Like, it was funny. The kids laughed. 
And as I'm standing in the pastor's office listening to a mother tell the pastor about how I said shoot you in the face, I realized it probably wasn't the best uh, content for children's church. But at the time it seemed hilarious. And the kids laughed. I'm starting to see a pattern. It's always a, maybe my humor is better aimed at a younger crowd. And last week I said fart and turd in the same message. But here's the deal. I, I may slip up about da- Balaam's donkey 28 years ago. I pointed a toy gun at a superhero's face 18 years ago. And Judy chewed me out from my language two weeks ago. <laughs> but I've been pursuing Jesus with all my heart as a ragamuffin with an inappropriate sense of humor all that time. And honestly, we started Open Table Community Church for people like me, people who love Jesus but don't necessarily know how to do church. And we started OTCC for ragamuffins wives like Esther and Judy, who maybe don't mess up that bad but are married to people who do. So the way I would love to respond to this message is to be yourself here, period. Please don't do the fake only show the church mask thing here. Be the hot mess that you are and know that we love you anyway because of the Jesus story, because of the way Jesus loves you. And he already knows what's behind the mask. Now, please, if you're good at church and you don't use the fun words and you don't watch the shows that make you feel guilty for laughing and you don't fall on your face very often, then be that person. You don't have to cuss to go to church here. Whatever that you is, be that. Be you. There's simply no benefit to hiding here. We all pull up to the same table. And all the brokenness goes under the table. What we dream about here at Open Table Community Church is a room full of real Mephibosheths. We're trying trying to draw close to Jesus and trying to advance the kingdom of God and be a blessing to the world. And we're doing all of that together. So if that sounds good to you, welcome to Open Table Community Church. Let's go to the table.